I want to set some context, some cultural context, if I, if I may. Um, and just acknowledging that children are a gift from God, the fruit of the womb, a reward, as Psalm 127 says. Uh, and I think the Catholic Church has some great teaching on the family. And this is from the Catholic Catechism, uh, which says the fecundity, which is a great word, of conjugal love cannot be reduced solely to the procreation of children, but must extend to their moral education and their spiritual foundation. Formation, excuse me. The role of parents in education and any in anywhere else, health care, uh, you know, teaching, um, you know, guiding, mentoring, etc., is of such importance that it is almost impossible to provide an adequate substitute. That's pretty significant. The right and the duty of parents to educate their children are primordial and inalienable. That word inalienable. Anybody heard that word? Somewhere, where do we hear that? The Declaration of Independence, right? Yeah, but there's a problem. There's a problem, what's the problem? Well, the problem we all grapple with is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That's the problem of sin, right? And it affects our entire world. As, as the founders wrote in Federalist 15, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary, but neither is true. Thus, we need the balance, the checks, as we're going to talk about here. But as we talk about this idea of erosion of parental rights, I think we need to understand this topic within a larger context of erosion of freedom in our country at large, not just on the issue of parental rights. When you look at government today compared to the founding, or even 150 years ago, it has never been larger. Uh, the impact of government on our daily lives is increasing at an alarming rate, in my opinion, and centralizing also, both at the state and federal level. Whether it's tax impact, um, laws, regulations, you know what they say when Congress is in session, you know, watch out for your freedom and your wallet, right? Well. One of our founders defined tyranny. He said, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, few, or many, whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elected, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. So, you know, that's, that's a, a phrase I think about a lot when I look at what's going on in our country. Am I saying we're under a tyranny? Well, you decide. I've given you the definition. You decide. But in, in our country, we do have um, a, a dual federal system where we have states or sovereign entities, entities and uh, the federal government has enumerated powers. Enumerated powers, right? Um, I would make the argument that it has exceeded its boundaries of enumerated powers significantly and many areas, not just in the area of parental rights and education and healthcare. Um, and what I, I see happening is a federalization of rights. And we talk about erosion, I'm not sure if that's the right construct though, Stephen. I wanna propose another construct as an economist. I studied economics as an undergraduate and the idea of crowding out. Government is crowding out civil society. And certainly that erodes the rights and freedoms of people. But to me, that may be a better way because erosion has the idea of, of, of undermining, of washing away, of uh, you know, crumbling. You know, some things are crumbling, but I think the idea of crowding out is, is, is maybe a better analogy. 
Um, and, and when I look at the federal government, and I look at the three branches of the federal government, I would look at it in this way, and we're going to talk about this in the context of, human, of parental rights. Um, when you look at the judiciary, I want to talk about the doctrine of substantive due process. Anybody heard that term before? Substantive due process. Anybody? Come on. If you've heard it before, just raise your hand so I know if it's like a third or... Okay, so some of you have, some of you haven't. Okay. Um, and in the doctrine of incorporation, in Congress, spending... How is it that, that the federal government is able to, to impose itself in so many areas of our lives? Some of it is it has enumerated powers, but education, it's not in the Constitution. Parental rights, healthcare, are those in the Constitution? No, the Congress is spending money and then it's getting the states to take the money and do the thing. And who could say no to billions of dollars, right? Or in some cases, they're just like, you know, we're just gonna do it. You know, like, yeah, you, you have to buy health insurance, okay. Right? Really? Where did that come from? Um, Obamacare. Uh, or executive orders. Okay? And, and truly, the executive has gained so much power, the modern administrative state, through the delegation by Congress to the executive, but this has been allowed by the Supreme Court. They've allowed this to happen. So when you look at the federal government, um, it has accumulated a lot of power relative to the states, and uh, so that's what I, I look at that and I say, well, we've got these federalization of rights. That'll become important as we talk about parental rights and the history of it in a moment. I want to throw out a term um, you may not have heard before called juristocracy. Anybody ever heard this term before? Juristocracy. Is the United States a federal republic or a juristocracy? Well, what did Ben Franklin say? He said, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. Um, you know, but who makes the final decision in our country when it comes to rights? Just park that right there for a moment. So we talk about this question, and I want to suggest to you that perhaps the most significant root of these problems we're encountering in our country is the, is the fact that we are moving towards what I would call a juristocracy, ruled by judges. Ruled by judges. Because the Supreme Court has become the plenary legislature in many ways. You can look at that in the area of, of life, in marriage, in, in parental rights also. Is that a good thing? We'll talk about that. Uh, clearly, in the context of parental rights, uh, the, courts, the federal courts have said some good things about parental rights. We'll talk about that. But the question I want to challenge you with is, okay, that's great if the federal courts have said parental rights are fundamental and primary and they've defended them, is that still the way the country was designed to operate, number one? And number two, is that a good thing going forward, even if they are saying good things about them? And, these, and when you look at these rights, parental rights or life or even marriage, they are rooted in this doctrine of substantive due process. And I want to talk about that. Okay. So just a little bit of context for you as we move forward here. So history and analysis of erosion of parental rights in USA. So it's a tough time to be a parent, um, whether you're a homeschooling parent or a private school parent or not, because apparently parents are now domestic terrorists, right? If you go to the school board and say, you know what, we don't like what you're doing with our kids, you're a domestic terrorist, apparently, and the Attorney General of the United States is going to investigate, use the FBI to investigate. Um, that's chilling. It's very chilling. Uh, some people, like Terry McAuliffe, who was once the governor of Virginia and now wants to be the governor of Virginia, again, uh, says he doesn't believe parents should tell schools what to teach. Ooh, well, who is supposed to tell the schools what to teach? I mean, what is education anyway? What is education anyway? Is education a weapon 
Now, this is not a comment on Nelson Mandela. It's just he did say this. I think some people would support this idea. I, I'm asking the question, is education a weapon? Should it be seen as a weapon? Certainly, I think it can be used as a weapon, and it certainly can change the world. All right, now we're going to do another technical test, because I have a video clip here, and I don't know what's going to happen. So bear with me. If it doesn't work, we'll figure it out, because I think it's really instructive about how some people think about education. OK, so you can't hear it, so let's see if I can fix this. Hang on. It's OK. We have never invested as much in public education as we should. OK, let's try it again. I, I found the speakers on my computer. There we go. We have never invested as much in public education as we should have because we've always had kind of a private notion of children. Your kid is yours and totally your responsibility. We haven't had a very collective notion of these are our children. So part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Once it's everybody's responsibility and not just the households, then we start making better investments. This is the culture in which we live. Yeah, that's a, that's a gobsmacker. Right, Debbie? <laughs> uh, wow. I've, I've been watching that video for years, and it hits me the same way every time I hear it. It's like, what? Yeah, there are people who think that. Now, there, there, it, there is a basic premise we need to agree on, which is this. Children are dependent. right? They, as the previous speaker talked about, children come into this world dependent. The question is, on who are they dependent? This is the question that we need to grapple with as a society. The role of the state, the role of the family, the interaction between them. Children are dependent, but the question is on whom? And under what circumstances may the government, should the government intervene? So one more, one more video clip here. Let's see what happens. The state needs to be the ultimate guarantor of a child's well-being. There's just no alternative to that. The reason parent-child relationships exist is because the state confers legal parenthood on people through its paternity and maternity laws. It's the state that is empowering parents to do anything with children, to take them home, to have custody, and to make any kind of decisions about that. James Dwyer is a professor of law at William & Mary, and he's written a book on homeschooling, and, and that's his view of parents and the state. He does not believe that parents have a primary right like the Catholic Church teaches, like we as Christians believe, as the Bible teaches, uh, have a primary uh, responsibility to educate our children. He says, no, 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 it's the state. Why is that? Well, I think <laughs> some people have forgotten the purpose of government. <laughs> some people just want to be left alone, right? That's, that, is the, that is the refrain of the homeschooling community. Just, no, just, we're good. Just leave us alone. We're good. Thank you. And, and then the other people are like, no, take care of us. We want to be taken care of. We want you to give us whatever we need, right? This is a fundamental difference of how, of how we see the world. This is a worldview issue. And as this old Reverend Matthias Burnett said, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which our fathers delivered to you, our founding fathers. So how are we doing? How are we doing? Well, I want to, as we transition to the more legal part of this, and I'm going to try and explain some of these con concepts of substantive due process and the legal history of, of, of parental rights in America, I want to postulate, I want to suggest to you that, that there is an ultimate reason. We talked about it at the very beginning, the, the problem of sin. How does that work itself out in our country? 
Well, John Adams had a very profound thing to say when he wrote a letter to the Massachusetts militia in the late 1700s. He said this, and I encourage you to read that entire letter. It is really worth reading. Just Google John Adams' letter to Massachusetts militia. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to, go to the government of any other. And I would suggest to you that if you, if you look at the world today with the correct worldview, with the spiritual lens, as John Adams did, you can understand what's going on around us and why it's happening. Because culture is downstream from what? Right? Politics is downstream from culture, but what is culture downstream from? Religion. Beliefs. That's what it's downstream from. He said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, licentiousness would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. If you wonder what is going on in our country, this is, this is how to make sense of it and why it's happening. Okay, so let's transition. I wanna talk about some questions here for the lawyers and, and quickly get through this so we can have some conversation. What's the big deal about parental rights? I think I've already answered that question in some respect. How did parental rights become a federal constitutional issue anyway? What are the major areas and cases related to parental rights? And for you lawyers, there are some practice suggestions. So, so what's the issue here? Um, wow, there's a lot of issues as it comes to parental rights uh, in, in, in the world today. The modern administrative state is crowding out families and parents and intruding. We have abuse and neglect laws that have moved from criminal to civil. And I'll call that law creep. Okay, when you look at the history, it used to be criminal, now it's civil. There's reasons for that, I can't go into all the details, but we have the, a capital law, which is a federal law, it's that spending law, okay, that has created regulations that if states want the money, and it's not that much money, but if they want the money, they have to do the thing that the feds are saying, and they have to certify, yes, we've done what you told us to do, please give us our billion dollars, okay? That apply an institutional process when they're investigating abuse and neglect. Now, does the government have an interest in protecting children? Of course. Right, Romans 13 says, the, 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 you know, one of the reasons that government exists is to protect the innocent, right? And are children innocent? Absolutely, okay? Uh, and are there bad parents? Yes. Do they do bad things? Yes, they should be criminally prosecuted, okay? Should they be civilly investigated? Should, they, should their due process rights be stretched to the point of breaking? Maybe not. Well, we also live in a highly complex society Families are breaking down. We talked about that just a little while ago. Surrogacy issues, marriage, questions about marriage, gender confusion. These are, these are complicated times in which we live that, in, that sort of touch on the issue of parental rights. What is, who is a parent anyway? <laughs> Surrogacy, right? Adoption. Who's the parent? Wow, we've made things complicated for ourselves. Well, the, you know, why should we be surprised by that? Hasn't it ever always been the case from the, from the very beginning in the garden? Um, again, the basic premise, children are dependent, but the question is on whom, and, and, and is how does the state respect that truth? So the constitutional question, how did parental rights become a federal constitutional issue? Because in, in, the, in the book chapter, what I do is trace the history of parental rights from the 1920s, which is the first time that the uh, Supreme Court took up the issue of parental rights, 1920s, in Meyer v. Nebraska, and then in Pierce v. Society of Sisters. But what in the world is the federal government, the Supreme Court doing adjudicating parental rights? Where do they get that from? 
Well, it comes from the 14th Amendment due process clause. Okay, this is where the, the idea of substantive due process came from. Okay, you don't see that in the Constitution. It doesn't say, Supreme Court, you will review state laws regarding the Constitution. It doesn't say that. Um, what the 14th Amendment says, which was passed in 1868, uh, was ratified in 1868 during Reconstruction, intended to remedy wrongs of slavery because black people were being still ill-treated even after the war in the southern states. Uh, and so they, the Congress passed these, these Reconstruction Amendments for that purpose. And part of it was uh, you know, to you know, recognize that they were citizens. But then it says, no state shall make or enforce any law which abridges the privileges or immunities of citizens, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. And then section five says, Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. It's longer, it's a five section uh, amendment, you should read it. But when you look at the jurisprudential history of this, we have to start with the, um, the first thing, that in 1833 in Barron v. Baltimore, and substantive due process is this idea, let me, let me stop for a second, let me, let me try to explain it. So substantive due process, uh, what is due process? Because there's substantive due process and there's procedural due process. Okay, you have to understand the difference between the two. Procedural due process is the idea that you get proper procedure. Like if you're charged with a crime, uh, you get a fair hearing, trial by jury, uh, you know, maybe a lawyer, right to, right to be represented by counsel. You have the, the right steps occur when the government is interfering with your liberty right. Okay, whether you're being arrested or maybe tried for capital punishment or having your property taken away from you, right? Because they can do those things. Government can do those things, but they have to follow the correct procedure. Substantive due process is different because what, it, what the court has done with that is it has interpreted into the 14th Amendment its own ideas of what liberty means. What liberty means, okay? There is this corollary, corollary um, doctrine called selective incorporation or incorporation, which is the other way that the court adjudicates rights. So we're talking about how the courts, the federal courts, adjudicate rights claims. When someone says, hey, you're violating my rights. I have a right. You're violating it. Okay. When somebody says that and they think that, they're going to the court to say, hey, the government's doing something against you know, what they should be doing and you need to tell them to stop, basically. And so the, so the court's like, okay, how do we know whether that's happening? Where do we understand these rights? Right? So the federal government enumerated powers but there is this thing called the Bill of Rights, right? Now, does the Bill of Rights apply to the states? Class. <laughs> Some people are going like this. Some people are going like this. Okay, this is good. So in 1833, Baron v. Baltimore said very, cl very clearly that the Bill of Rights applies only to the federal government. 1833. So how is it that we go to the federal court when my free speech is being violated? Like Mike Ferris is the CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, and he goes to federal court all the time to defend people's religious uh, rights, their freedom of expression, their freedom of worship. He's won cases at the Supreme Court. Why is he going to the federal court? If the Bill of Rights applies to the federal government only. Well, well that's the doctrine of selective incorporation. Over time, what the court has done is it has said, look, you know what? No state shall deprive a person of life, liberty, or property. It doesn't say no state shall deprive a person of the Bill of Rights, life, liberty, or property. And so the court has said, well, if liberty means anything, it must mean that parents have a fundamental right to direct the education and upbringing of their children, right? 
It says that in the Constitution. No, it doesn't say that in the Constitution. The court decided, now that's substantive due process. It says, well, if the state is interfering with my right to free speech, like New York says, hey, you can't you know, preach the gospel here on the street corner. Well, I have a right to free speech. In 1833, the court would be like, get out of here. But in 1925, the court said, well, this 14th Amendment, no state thing, we must have to get involved here. And so they did. And they started the process of looking at the Bill of Rights and saying, okay, free speech. Yes, that applies to the states. Did they do it all at once? No, they didn't. That's where they came up with this idea of selective incorporation because over time, they were presented with these cases that creative lawyers brought to them and said, hey, you gotta tell the state of you know, Wyoming to stop interfering with my religious expression. And the court said, well, we've never incorporated religious expression before, but now it's time to do that. So we're going to. And so they did that over the course of, well, does anybody happen to know when the last time was that they did that? How about 2010? when they incorporated the good old Second Amendment. Can you imagine, up until 2010, they had never incorporated the Second Amendment. That's what they did, okay, DC versus Heller. And that was against the District of Columbia, and then later, in a case called Chicago v. McDonald, they incorporated it against the states, okay? So selective incorporation, but so, so two doctrines, selective incorporation, substantive due process. Substantive due process was the idea that there's this word liberty, and people are saying, we have a right, but it's not in the Bill of Rights. So what do we do? Like the right to privacy, right, from which we get Roe v. Wade. But it goes back further. The rights of parents is one of the first substantive due process cases in Pierce v. Society of Sisters when the state of Oregon passed a law voted by the voters of Oregon. All the voters of Oregon said no private schools in Oregon at all, period. They took that case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, the theory of liberty on which our union stands, rests, they use the word repose, but that's kind of old school, stands, is against the idea that the state, meaning state of Oregon, can standardize its children by sub requiring them to receive instruction from public teachers only. Okay, and they said, nope, Oregon can't do that. That's against the US Constitution. Okay, because liberty, because parents have a fundamental liberty interest, there's that word liberty, in the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive a person of life, liberty, or property. Okay, so that's where substantive due process comes from because the court is putting substance into it. It's not really process, you see? Okay. Well, the founders saw this coming. You saw Federal 78. One founder said, well, the judiciary is the weakest of all branches of government. How's that working out for us? But in Entry Federalist 15, the, the writer says, well, the courts, the judges will be able to extend the limits of the government gradually by insensible degrees and to accommodate themselves to the temper of the people, Justice Kennedy. Their decisions on the meaning of the Constitution will commonly take place in cases between individuals, and the public will not generally be acquainted with them. Now, today we got the internet and social media, so we're much more aware of stuff, right? One adjudication will form a precedent to the next, and there's a following one, which is exactly what has happened. These cases will immediately affect individuals only so that the series of determinations will probably take place before even people are informed of them. What have we seen? That's what we've seen. Uh, the court has, has moved along through substantive due process. I think I've explained it and we'll move on. When you're looking at rights analysis, there are, two, there are three kind of tests the court will apply. This is, some, this is for the CLE, to remind the lawyers who forgot their law school 
class of constitutional law. So you've got fundamental right, and if you have a fundamental right, it's strict scrutiny. The court has to apply strict scrutiny. If it's an equal protection claim, the court is applying intermediate scrutiny. And if it's neither, then the court simply applies a rational basis. Now, this is so relevant even today because when you look at the vaccine debate, and I'm sorry to bring this controversial issue in here. Look, you do what you want to do. That's what I think you should be able to do, okay? And I have no problem with people who get a shot, don't get a shot. But what I do have a problem with is government telling people that, that they have to do it, okay? Okay, that's my, that's my view on that. But this is relevant. Why? Because in Maine, two days ago, the First Circuit said to people who were applying for religious exemptions, which they have a right to, said, no, we're just going to apply rational basis re review because you don't have a fundamental right to you know, express your religion, right? But yet, at the same time, in Texas and Michigan, you have federal courts do doing the complete opposite. The complete opposite, saying to United, don't you dare fire those people, right? And in Michigan, don't you dare kick those kids off the soccer team. Yeah. So... So it matters what level of scrutiny is applied, and it matters whether you think it's a fundamental right or not. Okay, so that's, that's the issue here. So if strict scrutiny says um, you got to have a compelling interest, if the government has a compelling interest, like, you know, yes, the government has an interest to protect children, of course, from bad people, of course, but then the government has to use what's called the least restrictive means, meaning you know, a, you know, only the most tailored approach to dealing with whatever that interest is, okay? Um, equal protection is a little bit of a different level. Reminder for the lawyers, if it, it's an important government interest and the means of regulation has to be substantially related, and this applies mostly to suspect classes such as race, religion, national origin, except that race classifications have been um, given strict scrutiny, okay? Although, you know, in context of admission to university, we're arguing about this as a society. What does it mean to be, you know, race neutral or race based or whatever? Okay, and then if it's neither a fundamental right or, or a, um, 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 equal protection claim, then the court can just say, okay, is it, is, is, it, is it a government interest? Like the government has no interest in the color of doorknobs at my house. So it can't tell me that I have to use gold or red, white, and blue or red doorknobs. Okay, there's no interest in that at all. And so even if they passed a regulation, it, no interest, okay? But if they say, okay, look, everybody has to have security cameras because we have, you know, a lot of criminals, okay, you know, is that reasonably related to a government interest? Eh, we can argue about that. Anyway, those are the three tests. But clearly, parental rights are fundamental. You go back to um, Pierce, Society of Sisters, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Great quote. The primary role of parents in upbringing their children now established beyond debate as an enduring American tradition. There is a presumption that fit parents act in their children's best interests, Parham VJR, and even Troxel. Now, Troxel is a little controversial because Troxel is the most recent parents' rights case where there was no majority opinion saying that parents' rights are fundamental. But they still said, there's normally no reason for the state to inject itself into the private realm of the family to further question fit parents' ability to make the best decisions regarding their children. Good stuff. Thank you, Supreme Court, right? Really? Thank you, Supreme Court? Yeah. If the power to define is the power to control, okay? So, so what does parental rights look like in the context of education, for example? And in my paper, uh, I kind of break it down between health, Care, care and custody and education, which are kind of the three main areas 
where federal courts have adjudicated parental rights claims. You know, so you got language of instruction, Meyer v. Nebraska, an old one. Right to private education, Pierce v. Society of Sisters. Right to opt out of school after the age of 14 for the Amish people, uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder. Uh, right to opt out of certain content, um, certain content, but not other content. So for example, Parker v. Massachusetts, David Parker wanted his kindergartner to be able to opt out of having King and King read to him as part of reading time. Okay, and he, he's famous, he got arrested because he wouldn't leave the principal's office until they agreed that his kindergartner wouldn't have to read the prince and prince or whatever, sec homosexual material in kindergarten. Okay, I mean, this is like, we're like, yeah, what's the big deal today? And 20, 15 years later, we're like, yeah, that's passe. But back then, this was 2005, it was a big deal. Um, and so they said, this is what they said, they said to him, hey, uh, dude, you can homeschool if you don't like it or send your kid to a private school because public school, we decide. Okay, so constraining the rights of parents here. And that's been very consistent. Mozart v. Hawkins, which, Mike, didn't you argue that case? Yes. Mike Ferris argued this, Mozart v. Hawkins, uh, about creation content. You know, do schools have to teach creationism versus evolution? And the court's like, no, no, they don't have to teach creationism, okay? Um, so you can opt out of certain content, but not all content. Uh, FERPA, Federal Education Rights Privacy Act. Uh, yes, you can have access to records, but the schools are allowed to disclose certain information. So you see the, that's a federal, again, the federal government getting involved in education. In the Constitution, not really, but they passed a law. Uh, IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. Again, spending clause, right? We'll give you the money if you do the thing. Now, IDEA, yeah, it's not bad legislation. Um, it helps some people, but is it the federal government's responsibility? It's, you know. Um, how about the right to give consent for interviews without reasonable suspicion of abuse or neglect? Oh, well, that's weird. Well, that's kind of par for the course, I guess. It's time for me to stop. You telling you to send me a message, Steve? <laughs> uh, what's going on here? Oh, okay, thank you. Okay, great. So, you know, so, so social workers, generally state, states actually have laws that say social workers can go to a school, a public school, and interview children if there's a, an allegation made of abuse or neglect without the consent or notice of parents. Didn't, don't know if you knew that. If your kids are in public school, they can. They can do that. Now, I, I don't think that's right. I think parents should be made aware. And this has been challenged in court. And some, sometimes it's been upheld. In some cases, it hasn't been upheld. Depends on the facts. So in education, it's just uh, some topics of education. Uh, health, what about health? Uh, what about informed consent? Big issue these days, right? Do parents have a right to give informed consent for medical procedures? Well, you would think so. But the D District of Columbia just passed a regulation saying that um, they're going to immunize children, and it's not just coronavirus immunizations, any immunization. If a child, even as young as 12, wants one, without telling the parents. And in fact, the regulation actually requires the school people to hide that fact from the parents. Uh, ParentalRights.org, an organization, um, uh, Jim Mason was gonna present here, but he's not presenting, uh, is suing the district over this law because we think this is, they think it's a violation of parental rights. Um, there have been cases that have looked at this issue and said, no, you can't do something to a child if the parents aren't informed. 
Because children are minors, they can't give consent. They can't give legal consent to a medical procedure. Although we heard at the very introduction that apparently Ohio's passed a law that minors can give consent to an abortion without parental consent. And this has been a hotly litigated area in abortion law. Another, uh, another area is in the area of parent-doctor disputes, right? So the doctor says, you know, I want to meet with your child by, by himself. And you're like, well, he's eight. I'm coming in. No. You know, and, and that's an area of dispute. Why do they want to do that? No, because they want to ask questions that they don't want you to hear the answers to or that they don't want to hear you inter and interfere with the questions. Um, the involvement of social services in hospitals and situations where children are brought in with injuries. Okay, okay, again, the state has a role in protecting children, but you know, you show up with a kid with a broken arm and suddenly you're now being investigated and interrogated by social workers, okay? Which result, can result in some pretty bad things happening, actually, because in some cases, these agents of the state can jump to conclusions and then do things which are wrong and ultimately are shown to be wrong, but they get away with it. Um, custody and control. So these are the cases that relate to custody and control. So you've got Prince um, going way back. Of course, Jacobson is a case that's in the news these days about vaccination, but it's not about children. Jacobson was about the authority of the state to require everyone in the community to get a vaccination. That's kind of being talked about now. But Prince was about Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses who were street preaching, and it was a labor law case. The mom's like, hey, I'm going to go out and preach, honey. Mom, I want to come with you. No, 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 you have to stay home. No, I want to come with you. So the mom relents. They go out, and she gets charged with violating labor laws. Okay? And she lost. Uh, Stanley, you know, Stanley is a case that re re relates to an unmarried father's interest. Does an unmarried father have an interest or not have an interest? So we're starting to get into the complexity that came out of the 60s with the breakdown of the family. It's like, okay, now we have to decide these cases. Uh, they decided on an equal protection grounds. and said, no, an unmarried father doesn't. Uh, Duchesne, you know, is, a, is the right to family integrity. Does a family have a right to be considered an, an inter integral unit? And at what point can the state intervene? Uh, Lassiter, is there a right to counsel in parental rights termination cases? The court said, well, that's a state law issue. We'll let the states deal with that. So in some states, there is. And in some states, well, in some states, states give them. In others, they don't. But the court said, no, you don't have to do that in order to protect the parental interests. That's, that's a hard one. Uh, Santosky v. Kramer, termination of parental rights requires clear and convincing evidence. Before that, it was just reasonable basis with a preponderance of the evidence. And in that case, the court said, look, terminating a person's parental rights is like the death penalty in parents' rights. You gotta have more than just a preponderance of the evidence. So now it requires clear and convincing. And then Troxel, in Troxel, which I mentioned before, was a case about a Washington state law which allowed any third party to petition for uh, visitation with the child. And the court said, you know what? The Washington law is a little bit too broad. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't say that you couldn't do that, but they said this law is way too broad and doesn't give special weight to the parent's interests. Wait a minute, what special weight? I mean, it, isn't, it shouldn't it be like either yes or no? No, according to Croxel, as long as the state is just giving some special weight, they can have laws that allow a third party to petition for and a court to order visitation, even if the parents disagree. Um, okay. All right, adjudication of parental rights legal standards. So we talked about these. 
Um, practice suggestions, you guys can, I'll, I'll send this to any lawyers who want it. Uh, some additional re, uh, resources for you. Uh, the American Bar Association has some resources. Uh, generally, I, you know, I question the ABAs on some things, but they have some resources on this you might uh, be interested in if you want to do more research. Uh, Parentalrights.org has a lot of resources. Also, Martin Guggenheim is a pretty famous uh, law professor who has written a couple of books uh, about this issue, and I highly recommend them to you for further reading. Um, so what can the righteous do if the foundations be destroyed? Is the family the foundation of a, of a strong society? Are strong families the foundation of strong societies? What's happening to the family today? There's Part of it is the erosion of parental rights, as I've kind of walked you through where that came from and how the federal courts kind of took that issue on. How do we deal with that? Well, that's, that's a larger talk. Um, can it be dealt with? Maybe, maybe. Um, but I want to encourage you. You may look around and look at society and say, wow, scratch your head, and how do, how do we do anything about this? But I want to remind you what one of our founders, Sam Adams, cousin of John, said. He said, it does not take a majority to prevail. Only a tireless and irate minority willing to set brush fires in the minds of their neighbors. So you are the minority, some of you, some of you may totally disagree with what I've said here today, but that's okay, we can talk about it. Um, but you're the minority. Go out and talk to people. Convince them. Share with them. Right? What's the real solution? In my opinion, this is not CLE related, uh, the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that can change people's hearts and change the relationships and reform society. Thank you.